You're listening to the Ascension Roundtable Podcast, Episode 56, Make Catholic Formation Holistic Again. Catholic formation isn't just about teaching the brain. It has to do with development of a whole person, spiritually, physically, mentally, and socially. The Church has long recognized that this formation best happens in a Christian community. In this episode, you'll learn why knowing church teachings isn't enough. You have to allow your whole self to be transformed by Christ, including your prayer life, your personality, how you interact with others, and even the food you put in your body. Whether you're a DRE, youth minister, parent, grandparent, or Bible study leader, this episode will help you take steps towards your own holistic formation and empower you to build a community where others can experience the fullness of true Catholic formation. Stay tuned. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. We're excited today. We have a special guest with us. Her name is Stacy Nome. She was actually recommended to us by one of our listeners, someone named Philip, one of our many guests who have written in the, in the last couple of months. So um, we're excited to have uh, a recommendation from a listener on our show today. It's pretty awesome. Uh, welcome, Stacy. Thank you. It's glad to be with you. We also have Marisa and uh, Tom McCabe on the line. So you get the full gambit of personalities today, Stacy. Sorry about that. Not at all. My pleasure. <laughs> I'll go ahead and apologize in advance for having to deal with Tom McCabe today on the air. It can be <laughs> quite you know, painful I, I sometimes. I was just up there in, in uh, Philly, and it was so great to see you, Marisa. I, I, I avoided Alan's office, but it was great to see you, Marisa. <laughs> it's great to see you too, Tom. I also right. avoid Alan even when I work here. So. <laughs> I keep getting moved around. I wonder if that has anything to do with, <laughs> with it. Alan's office used to be right next to mine, uh, but I had to, you know... I had a, a couple stipulations, you know, in my request to continue working at Ascension. One of them was that Alan be moved to the. Actually, I think you were far as far as anybody so. could possibly be from my so. office now. <laughs> so, Stacy, we we really do love each other. Okay, it, it's sort of like those siblings that, that uh, just sort of bicker at each other. Oh, I can feel the love. <laughs> I'm just I'm their ticket to holiness, Stacy. It's penance for them. <laughs> Aren't we all each other's? Yes. <laughs> so, Stacey, um, you are the Director of Human and Spiritual Formation for lay students in the Masters of Divinity program at the University of Notre Dame. That's right. You've served for seven years in campus ministry as Assistant Director of Faith Formation at the University of Portland. Hmm? And you and your husband write a blog called Happily Ever After? No. Happily US, Even After. Happily Even After for the USCCB. <laughs> That's right. Excellent. And um, your website is for, foryourmarriage.org? Foryourmarriage.org is the bishop's website for um, marriage enrichment. And so we get to write the blog for that website or one of the invited blogs. There are some others for different stages of married life. Gotcha. Excellent. Okay. And you've been married since 98 and you have three yes. beautiful children. We have our 20th anniversary coming up. It's kind of crazy. Wow. Congratulations. Thank Congratulations. You. How old are your kids? Uh, we have a 17-year-old, and then there's a gap, which is described by grad school, and then we have a 12-year-old, um, and then an 11-year-old. So two boys, and then our daughter's the youngest. 
and I'll just put a plug in for you, Stacy. That if, if no one's gone to the the blog, they, they re, your blog, they really ought to, just because I, I think you write very well, and it's it's always very pithy. Uh, <laughs> I remember I, I had read your How to Raise a Saint, which was very touching to me about Saint Padre Pio. Mm-hmm. Um, that was one of them that I had read. So if, I, I just mentioned that to our listeners. If you're really looking for something, it's just a a very hit, you know, shot in the arm. You know, something that's very relevant to married life, um, it, it's very good. So, um, you know, kudos to you and to Josh. That's your Thank husband, you. Josh, right? Yes, Josh is my husband. Thank you for that. He's the um, particularly skilled writer, and I'm the one who tries to throw pithy in. So. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Good that's combo. Okay, a good combo. Now, is your oldest son, is he thinking about going to University of Notre Dame? Yes, among a couple other schools. That is one of the hotly debated questions in the house, but we're looking at his discernment. So we're sure he'll find the right way, which is his choice and call, not our choice and call. (laughs) Just in in case he's listening. (laughs) Excellent. Um, Great. So did you go to school there as well? Or where are you, where are you guys from? Yes, actually my husband and I met here at the university of Notre Dame as freshmen in our first year. We actually had our first class together. It's a really just stereotypical story. Wow. We got married the day after final exams, our senior year. So it was quite the celebration. Very, very exciting. Oh, that's cool. It's kind of fairy tale-ish. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's great parts of fairy tales and the kind of cringeworthy kind. I hope people don't cringe at ours, but it is our story. We love it. <laughs> that's great. So our topic today is holistic formation. Um, so let me just throw a question out to you. Uh, Stacy. in your experience, what is a typical way most people in ministry approach or speak about formation? Thank you. And I'm so excited to talk about this topic uh, with you all. I think it's a very important one right now for our church. And um, I'm just so grateful that you're treating it um, today. So I think there are two general ways people look at formation. There is the more general um, kind of context where people use the word formation to mean any kind of like personal faith formation. So growth in their own personal spiritual life. Um But the more specific use of the word formation, I think, is with formation for ministry, especially formation for professional ministry in the church. Um, So formation might be used generically, but the bishops and seminaries have a very specific um, kind of context for it. And it takes five dimensions, intellectual, pastoral, human, spiritual, and even communal formation. So when you met, say, communal, are you thinking like more apostolic or service oriented? Or are you just thinking, is it, does, is it just like living in a culture together? Uh, yeah. Yes, indeed. I think that's an exceptional question. The um, Notably, so the bishops um, wrote two guiding documents, right? The program for priestly formation, which outlines one type of formation for priestly formation, obviously. Um, And then co-workers in the vineyard of the Lord for lay ministers. And the difference between these two documents is the presence of communal formation and the absence of it. So in priestly formation, they emphasize communal formation as an aspect, and it's absent from the lay side. And I think what that reflects is um, our bishop's hesitancy to kind of impose something on folks who are already giving of themselves to the church so generously. Um, 
on in our formation here at Notre Dame with lay folks, we still uh, use communal formation because what we like to say is that the best way to form folks um, intellectually, pastorally, humanly, and spiritually is in a communal context. The idea being that um, kind of like the Desert Fathers used to talk about, when you put two stones in your pocket at the beginning of a journey, by the end, it's that rubbing against each other that polishes off our edges and helps us be smooth gemstones. That's fascinating. Beautiful. That's that's uh, that, that's that's great. I think, as you said, that that really is more of a, a holistic approach. We, we, we don't go to heaven individually. Right. We're persons, and, and persons means we're in relationship. I love that analogy, uh, Stacy. A ton that you just mm-hmm. mentioned about the two stones rubbing together, because that is um, that's so much what it is. Uh, you know, I, we had a dinner with my. We have six kids, and mm-hmm. most of them are out of the house now. And I, you know, I, I we had a dinner recently and that they just got a text that I have something important to share with all of you. And it was hilarious because the kids are saying, oh man, they, they, they all sat down. They're thinking, what is dad going to tell us? He just had his colonoscopy. Okay. Something's, something's up, something's up. And, um, and they sat down and I says, well, I know you all are, are wondering what this is about. And you could see in their face. And I just said, we just need to be in your life more. Mm. We, we need to commit as a family, at least once a month that we're coming together because I need you in my life. And it was your, your point there that I love this concept of holistic um, formation uh, that isn't just about me, you know, uh, getting stronger, more powerful, more spiritual. It's like we go to heaven together. And I, I just commend you all for having that, that just that holistic approach. Thank you. We take it as um, we take the Trinity as our model in this, the idea that it's through kind of a Trinitarian concept of God being in relationship, but also the primary characteristics of the Trinity being about abiding, loving, um, and also self-sacrifice. So it takes something, something, it calls something out of you to be in community. And usually that ends up helping you become a better, more holy person Mm -hmm. in God's image. And you, you teach the students this, but you also teach them how to teach this. Is that correct? Uh, yes, in a sense. I mean, I think any really solid formation is something that when you've experienced it for yourself, you can't help but kind of shape others into it. We are actually explicit, though, about um, I think so we have a three year program. And I think by the time students are in um, my third year class and I'm explaining some nuts and bolts about leadership development and how those processes work, there's usually for half the class an aha moment of like, hey, this is what you did to us. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we're striving for the aha moments, I suppose. So I guess in that sense, do you find in general, like the students, you know, as you begin to uh, um, address this or, or teach it, they, they, they're, they're listening, listening to it from more of an academic uh, perspective? Oh, uh, yeah. No, actually, sorry. I didn't want to interrupt you. Go ahead. No, no. I was wondering, are, is it something they want to just tackle or as, as they're hearing it, it's they're thinking, OK, yeah, this is academic. Got it. You know, formation, spiritual, human, pastoral, mm-hmm. um, you know, or, but or do you find that they're like, wow, wow, I, I really want to live this? Yep. So um, the way that it's shaped as far as our program goes is that while they do have academic classes that are both um, uh, they're. Uh, formation intellectually and pastorally, they also have human and spiritual requirements. And while we do have a formation course, a class that has kind of topics in human and spiritual formation, um, they also have significant other requirements, including on the spiritual side, um, regular personal prayer, spiritual direction. Uh, We offer regular retreats and days of reflection based on the liturgical season. And then on the human side, they have to write... um, 
Well, first they start everything on the human side with doing a values exploration that we guide them through. And that helps them write a personal formation plan, which has sections on core values and signature strengths and then their goals for a given year. And then they have to meet with me every three weeks to check in around those goals. So accountability is a significant portion of what we do to help folks kind of stay on track with what their own um, hopes are for their their growth and development, of course, in conversation with um, the Holy Spirit. So. so you don't want them just to learn this. It's beautiful. You don't want them just to learn this intellectually. It's like, okay, if you're going to start, join us in this endeavor, this, this uh, program, you're going to live this. You're going to experience it. And we're going to, we're going to train you in holistic formation. Yes, that's right. So they live it for three years, um, kind of with a very close accountability partner and myself. And then of course, other mentors, spiritual directors, et cetera. How many people are in a cohort? Uh, we have uh, three class years. A given cohort is 15, which is um, roughly two-thirds lay students and one-third seminary students. So we have 45 over the course of the whole thing. Right now we have around um, 25. We, re- we rotate between around 21 to 30 lay students. You know, it can change based on our seminary population, too. And the seminarians, excuse me. So the lay students um, come to me for human and spiritual formation. The seminarians go to their seminary for human and spiritual formation, but all of those students share their intellectual and pastoral formation, which is kind of unique um, in the sense that uh, diocesan seminaries don't uh, train lay folks next to seminarians, but uh, we get the privilege to get to do that. And it makes a difference back to communal mm, yeah. formation and so on. Now, obviously the students that are seminarians, that what they're, what they're going on to do is pretty obvious. What about the other two thirds of students? What do most of them want to do when they <clears throat> come out of the program? What are they hoping to do with this? Yeah, part of our um, admissions process is uh, the clarity of their vocational call. So that doesn't mean that they necessarily know what kind of avenue of ministry they might choose to go into, but they do understand themselves to be called to professional ministry. Uh, The majority go into... um, parish, diocesan, or campus ministries of some kind. Uh, We have some who go into, if you will, like kind of um, uh, the Catholic social service sector, right? So Catholic charities, Catholic relief services, and any number of other pregnancy services. We have a whole kind of bunch of folks who are getting very, very actively professionally part of the right to life movement. And then um, uh, we probably have one or two a year who will go on for continuing studies, PhD, and, you know, we'll end up in the academy. Pretty cool. Yeah, I'm I'm really um, interested in this idea of lay people um, kind of experiencing this alongside seminarians um, in the kind of reciprocal learning that happens there. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. Can you speak a little bit more about that and the value of those relationships being built across those vocational calls? Absolutely. It's a, um, it's a great value for them in their learning context now, certainly, but I think overarchingly for their time when they move into the greater um, body of Christ in the church, the idea that um, when they come in together, they're all starting on the same foot, right? So they're all starting their academic formation at exactly the same time. So they all come from different places and kind of get their foundational base level graduate theology together. And so the groundwork that's laid in those first kind of class years, because again, they're together for three years and they travel as a cohort. um, The groundwork that's laid there allows for some very um, interesting conversations. One of the courses they have every year is a field education course. So they all have um, ministry placements and this is the seminar that accompanies that. So they get to break open the experience 
experiences of their um, of their ministry placement and do case studies, and they can kind of speak into each other's lives. Basically, you know, we don't talk about them as primary or secondary communities. We talk about them, all of them, as having a stake in one another, both personally and professionally, but not just for their own sake, but for the sake of the people of God who they're called to serve. And I think that's what gives them the um, energy and kind of um, uh, impetus to actually offer gentle kind of correction or challenge when necessary. So it isn't at all unusual for them to um, kind of say, I don't know that you handled that the right way. Or did you think about this at the same time? And that's going across, you know, lay and seminary and kind of boundaries. Um, but it's automatic. They just see one another as classmates. You know, there aren't um, uh, any kind of, uh, mm, I want to choose my word carefully. There aren't any uh, impediments to just speaking to one another as co-ministers, right? Mm -hmm. As folks who share ministry, um, albeit in different capacities in the future, for sure. So here's here's a question that I'll probably get edited edited out of the show, but have you? <laughs> okay. So really, go for it. I'm ready. <laughs> so since no one's going to hear it, I'm just going to throw it out there. Has anybody ever been in from the seminarian side, met somebody in the lay ministry side and started dating and discerned out of the vocation of pre the priesthood? Mm -hmm. Historically, that has happened. Um, let me think this through as far as the I want to have very specific folks in mind when I think of it. Um, yes. Historically, it has happened. We have, um, so the seminarians with us are the seminarians for the Congregation of Holy Cross. So they're religious, uh, they're religious, right? So they're in vows when they're in the MDiv program. So they don't date in the program, right? So a seminarian could um, discern out because of an interest that he had potentially. Um, but most often what we've seen happen isn't that they get interested in each other and he leaves the seminary. What most, most often we see that he discerns out and because of these strong relationships they've had in place, these people end up becoming interested in each other post, you know, that discernment. Yeah. So mm -hmm. yes, it definitely does happen. And I can see why that might get edited out. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a power, yeah. A power couple though. My goodness. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Isn't that funny to think about what could they do? Mm. Yeah. yeah absolutely. <laughs> How did you and your husband meet? Speaking of, and in, in school, but what, did, what did, were you guys studying? Oh, so we were, um, you know, it's just the kind of general things as far as freshmen, you know, full, um, what would you call it? Liberal arts education stuff. So we were in a humanities seminar together. Okay. So a smaller class where there's like a discussion table, you know, and the thing that struck me about Josh is how silent he is. I don't think I've ever seen a man who's able to be as quiet as he is. He doesn't say anything. He's very, very introverted. <laughs> <laughs> when he huh. speaks, he's so deep. And he just came over and sat down next. So you have that image. And then he comes over and sits down next to me one day and says, hi, you're Stacy. My name's Josh. I'm like, whoa, <laughs> <laughs> a lot of self-confidence, buddy. I don't know if I can handle that. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, so Stacy, you, you've talked about these five elements, which I, I think should intrigue all of us. You talked about the intellectual, the pastor, the human, the spiritual, and the communal. Um, I think for most of our listeners who are doing um, uh, uh, church ministry, they're out there, they're uh, church professionals or they're volunteers or that kind of thing. And many times, I, and I, I know that they already know the answer to this, but many times we'll think, okay, Pat, when we hear the word pastoral, we think of those who are in the, of the priesthood or religious life. And we don't think, mm. okay, we don't think of ourselves as 
being pastoral or being pastors or anything like that. And uh, in case there's that hang up for anybody, can you speak to those of us, uh, you know, who uh, have our lay vocation, how we are called to form ourselves pastorally? Mm -hmm. I would invite folks to think about uh, this use of the word pastoral um, as a slight contrast or nuance to intellectual. So if intellectual is very much about the head, pastoral is very much about the heart and hands. And so many of us, and I would think the majority of people who serve in um, parish life and so on, are actually doing significant pastoral ministry all the time. So when we talk about pastoral ministry, we're referencing um, everything from the ability to be an active listener and um, also to counsel folks or to even be a good administrator of a pastoral context and to be able to shape programming in such a way that it touches people in their lives and not just educates them as to, you know, church doctrine or precepts, but what does this look like in a lived kind of context? So pastoral um, skill and pastoral theology is very much about making concrete um, that which we believe deeply, but how to make it kind of humanly interact um, with those we serve. Very much the image of, you know, the good shepherd, like you're serving these people around you. How do you do that best? How do you help them to understand um, that which you've been trained into? So comparing that then to human formation. Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. So so human formation. So pastoral formation would be very much that outpouring kind of piece, right? Like the movement would be outward, but human formation is about oneself, right? So mm-hmm. human and spiritual formation, we have to have ourselves um, kind of in order. Human formation is very much about seeking to develop um, our human qualities and character, fostering a healthy, well-balanced personality um, for the sake of both oneself, for our personal growth, but also for our ministerial service. Um, and then the pastoral is then that service, you know, that translation um, for the people of God and not just the people of God, all people of goodwill. That idea of <clears throat> developing a well-balanced personality, you know, so many people, I think they don't even think that that has anything to do with growing in ministry or growing in their own vocation. You know, it's, I think it's so common to spiritualize everything and, and not to say obviously everything has a spiritual dimension but um but to kind of take the spiritual life out of context um of of like the human person and things like how you um yeah the convert how you interact with somebody um in your office or like the smile that you give or don't give as you're walking into the parish or just like your entire all your body language, um, all of that kind of stuff. How do you help people, adults who already have developed, you know, through their family experiences and through growing up? I'm assuming you have people who are not just right out of college, but even, you know, older in their 30s, 40s. Is that uh, mm-hmm. right? That That is accurate. We have kind of a niche kind of group that's in their late 20s, but we actually won't accept anyone directly out of college. They need to have had other experience previously so that they can draw upon it and have the fullness of a formation experience. Yes. That's very interesting. How do you take these adults and help them take a look at their personality and, and how in their virtue and their character and kind of I don't know. I think that's something people often do when they're younger, maybe, but you stop hearing about it as much when as you get older. Mm-hmm. The um, so there's a couple of ways to get at that answer, and it's really um, foundational. So. Um, how do we help them with this? The first piece is to help them understand why 
is their personality part of what's going into this? And so we get at that by um, relying heavily on the work of um, a sociologist actually named Matt Bloom, who's also here from the University of Notre Dame. But his uh, work, um, he got a Lilly grant and he did um, some excellent work called um, Thriving in Ministry, where they um, did major research on all kinds of um, Christian ministers and how to avoid burnout. So what's the difference between someone who's able to not only um, survive in ministry in the long haul, but to thrive? What are the elements that go into that? So there's a lot to say there, and I just can't say enough good things about Bloom's work. It's absolutely a cornerstone to what we um, have built our formation program on. But but um, one of the primary things that Bloom talks about are the elements that go into making up who we are as a human being and as a minister. And he says they're threefold. First level is your personality. The next level are your core values. And then below all of that is your personal narrative. So the story that you tell yourself about yourself. And so we help our students understand that all of these make up who you are. And so all of them are part of what you bring to the table when you attempt to serve others. Um, and so we're attending to all of them. Uh, the way we get at things like personality specifically is, again, around a little bit more education before we get into kind of the formation or transformation. And so we'll use um, we'll use personality inventories. We do a different one every year. So things like the Myers-Briggs, uh, we use StrengthsFinder. We also use, um, out of the Catherine of Siena Institute with Sherry Waddell, the Catholic Charisms Inventory. Uh, and there are any number of others. These are the three we just happen to have honed in on ourselves. And so we break those open with um, students. So for example, if we did the Myers-Briggs, they would have an introductory session. They would um, then take that inventory. And then we would do multiple debriefing sessions with them around their comprehension of what it's getting at, but also about the way that their, uh, if you will, personality type as defined by Myers-Briggs interacts with others, right? So communal um, activities and things like that to help them understand. And then uh, often I'll encourage them to write a, a personal formation plan goal around their um, inventory for the year just to see what they might want to play with, you know, what they need to build up a little more and maybe kind of um, even out a little more. And they're eager to do these things. Folks, this is something I find about working with um, any level. We so we talk often, right, about how um, people just don't listen to each other the same way anymore and what a gift it is to just have someone listen to you. I think the same is true of having someone in a formation role or a formator, if you will, who's just interested in helping you become the best version of yourselves. Folks are very um, free and open. We infrequently have people resistant to their own growth, uh, at least in a kind of obvious way. I think we all resist growth in <laughs> really, really subtle ways. Are there, are there um, certain personality types that lend themselves to wanting to be in this this um, study? So every year when we, and it's every third year when we do the Myers-Briggs, I'm surprised and that there are specific personality types that seem to profile towards ministry and we have all of them, right? Like, so we might have a small little concentration of what people say, this is usually what a minister is, um, but we end up having all of them. So while I think there are concentrations, um, we have definitely seen everyone across the board kind of 
uh, come to the table. And you see surprises, right? I've actually had people say to me, your husband's an introvert and he's also a minister. I don't think introverts can be ministers. I'm like, (laughs) 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 make some of the best ministers. So, you know what I mean? It's just kind of a funny, the presuppositions um, that we come in with. And then that's kind of what we get to offer, kind of breaking down all of those presuppositions and just receiving someone as an individual. One other piece, though, that answers uh, your question more personally, when you said, are there specific personality types that, you know, match up to this? In the strengths finder, there's an area called um, individuator is one of the things that you can get, right? And it means that you treat each person individually for their own story. And we established early on that I have the individuator thing, which is why I can retain no information that categorizes people. (laughs) So when they're kind of like, so are they this type or this type? I'm like, I don't know. They're just Jane. <laughs> you know, like, her own personal makeup. So I, I think that's a helpful thing as a four meter. That's oh, awesome. That's we, fascinating. we had um we actually spoke last week um with Father Philip Bochansky, who is the um director of Courage International. Um and so we were talking about uh, talking with him about kind of his approach and courage's approach to ministry. And one of the things that you just mentioned about how people are kind of taken aback when somebody like a formator takes personal interest and devotes an entire conversation purely to helping that person become a better person. He says, he always starts with, tell me your story. Mm-hmm. And just that, taking that position of um, of listening and then asking really, you know, asking really personal questions, not to, to violate the individual's mm-hmm. uh, privacy, but to really understand that person, um, you know, he just said that that's everybody needs to start there. It doesn't matter who you're you're ministering to. That's that's the first thing everyone um, should start with in in their ministry. Yes, I think that reflects um, also again what um, Bloom found in his research that that narrative, that personal story, is one of the most foundational parts that we have to who we are, and that we have to have a full grasp on it and our hands um, kind of fully around it. Also on the formation side of things, as far as working with people, it struck me when you said, you know, you can end up asking some pretty personal questions. And it's funny because they don't feel like personal questions, like particularly invasive questions Mm -hmm. when you're just tracking with someone and coming from a genuine space of curiosity to understand or know better where they're coming from so that you know the right kind of, um, uh, encouragement to give them. So the difference between a formator and a spiritual director is that a spiritual director might invite you to do something, but a formator will probably nudge you <laughs> towards <laughs> something. Like I get to nudge people, but I have to know um, if it suits them, you know, if this is the right nudge. And some of that means, you know, uh, asking the follow-up question that could seem a little bit personal, but I, I rarely experience people um, as experiencing that as um, invasive. And of course, they could always choose um, not to answer as well. It's really about knowing someone's story. Yeah, I love this because uh, yeah, it, it's what you're saying, uh, Marisa. People may think that or seem like, oh, it's it's invasive to ask that. But if there's a genuine interest, right, you, you really have a genuine interest and the person sees this, they trust that, th- then they will entrust their story to you. Um, don't take – I hope this doesn't sound no. offensive, Stacey, because I think it's, it, it is a compliment. But as you're – you're talking about this holistic formation and the nudge in in some respects, you guys really are life coaches. Uh, You are life coaches in, in a, in a incredible holistic 
transformative, um, you know, a holy God be praised way, which is very exciting that you are you are training these people in, in, in a way of life. It isn't just about oh, intellectual. You're saying, do you want to live a full life? OK, yeah, yeah. Live a holistic life. We want to give you holistic formation. And I'm going to nudge you. I'm going to coach you, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um and, and as you're as you're talking, it, it strikes me like, wow, yeah, everybody needs a uh, a formator that's helping us to be formed, right? Yes, I um I don't take any offense at all to the life coach thing. We take very seriously trying to draw on um, tools from any number of different um, aspects of society, right? What are the best practices that help people? Um, become fully formed. And so I've, I've made a point of sitting in on some of these kind of, you know, life coaching kind of sessions at a conference or something. And it, it only takes about five minutes to be like, this is what we do. You know, so they're trying to describe what being a life coach is. I'm like, "Uh uh-huh, got it. Good. I'm just going to slip out to a different (laughs) session because this is kind of what it looks like. Um, along the lines of, uh, nudging people, um, to become a better version of ourselves, their themselves. I just want to really emphasize, um, that this isn't in any way about knowledge that I have, or that we have information that we're trying to give to people as much as helping them to learn the tools of looking inside and putting themselves in conversation with God, especially the Holy spirit to help find their path. And so a lot of it, even though I use the language of nudge, a lot of it is um, we like to use the image of setting a table, but they have to pull themselves up to the table and they have to choose what they're going to eat from the table. Um, So we lay the things out, but the only um, agents of their formation are themselves and the Holy Spirit in their life. So we're trying to help them get in contact as much as possible through all the great spiritual practices of our tradition. Um, with themselves and the Holy Spirit. That's awesome. I yeah, I do have. I have a question about. Um, so okay, so most. I'm just thinking about the your typical DRE working at a parish works with many different staff, uh, works with their pastor or even somebody at the diocesan level. Um, and I'm thinking, is their experience typically one of community? Um, yeah, I guess I, I just I don't know where to take that, but. You know, you have the the privilege of working with this cohort of individuals who have committed themselves to this, and you're able to convey that vision. But so I think so many times a DRE finds themselves at a parish, um, and they don't have any sort of control over who else is there, or um, and and they might try to set tones. But I think that there could be frustration. Somebody listening and be like, "Oh, I want this so bad," mm-hmm. but people aren't going to be vulnerable in this way that I work with or people don't have, this is just a job for some people or they have the way that they've always done things at the parish. Um, so kind of what would you say to that person? Yep. The, um, there's a lot to say there. Community building first and foremost is a skill and figuring out what, um, type of community one needs in a given context. Now, what we're able to do in formation is a very specific, um, kind of work. I'm fascinated by wondering about how we could do this kind of remotely with people who aren't necessarily on site. But to do the type of thing we're doing, you do need someone who's in that formator role, right? Um, However, 
as far as um, the average person working in a parish as a DRE or youth minister or something like that, there are some primary relationships that are very important. Now, the first thing I'd emphasize about community is that to call um, a group of people community, they need to be peers. So would we call an entire parish staff a community? I don't know that I personally would go that far because likely there are power differentials in the relationships. Um, However, there are very important uh, relationships that, um, again, the work uh, that Bloom did in Flourishing in Ministry show us um, help someone feel the support that they need. Uh, specifically, they're the role of the mentor, a peer in ministry, which I can describe, and um, a true friend. And so Bloom talks about we all need mentors in our lives, but specifically someone who's farther along in the work that we're doing. They understand the work we're doing and who takes a personal interest in us. So not just a role model, not someone who you'd seek to be like, but someone who you actually can enter into a relationship with, but is is further along than you. Um, the peer in ministry is someone who does exactly the same work you do. So in this case, it would be a, another DRE, right, or another um, youth minister or what have you, but doesn't have a stake in the work that you're doing specifically. So isn't at your parish so that if you need to just pick up the phone and vent or talk through something or get some insight, um, they are in no way influenced by the outcomes in your specific ministerial context. They can just be for you. But because your peers in ministry, you do exactly the same thing. There's a shorthand, you know, the same vocabulary, you have the same kind of like, uh, flags and awarenesses of, um, what your constraints could be or what your opportunities could be. And then the final relationship is, um, a true friend. So these are the people that we can be our offstage self with and just, um, enjoy ourselves and not have to worry about the kind of like public face or, um, filtering or any of that kind of thing. And sometimes those are, you know, just your hangout buddies and stuff like that or a spouse. Um, but all of those relationships kind of fill these different um, niches of, you know, both growth and mutual support in both personal and professional kind of contexts. I don't think that gets to your point about um, how can someone seek out the type of, if you will, like uh, formation I was talking about humanly and spiritually, but those relationships do sustain you in ministry, which is equally important, I think. That's really good. We'll, and again, we're going to have um, some rounded out show notes for this show. And so we'll include some of those points um, so that people can either, um, you know, just have them on hand to, to glance at or even do a little bit more research into them. I'm just processing what you just said, and it's make me, making me think about the relationships in my life and different relationships I've had at different times in my life and when I've been what I would say more, um, you know, healthier than other times and what those relationships were. It's just got me kind of, I just kind of zoned out there and was like processing what you're saying. It was very, very interesting. Sorry, kind of the Bahamas there for a second. No, that's, a, that's especially important because I think you're emphasizing what is most important here, which is these are universal truths. This isn't some kind of, you know, rarefied insight. We can all immediately be like, wait, who are my people? Mm-hmm. Because it matters to be able to do that. So people automatically feel like this can be applicable to me. And then they start thinking about that. And I think that's exactly where we want them to be, because not only is it applicable to you, you can work on that. I would use those relationships as one of a few things that I self-evaluate against, right? So if I've taken on a new job or if I've moved geographically and something feels off, do I have the people in my life that I need to be in my life? I should give the caveat actually, and I forgot was, um, under the true friend kind of category for the true friend to be beneficial in the way that, um, Bloom was talking about. They have to be geographically proximate. Yeah. 
which is a challenge, right, in today's society, how often our dearest friends live across a country or something like that, you know? Oh, that's such good advice, I think, though, because people don't – I don't think people look to their friendships and relationships intentionally. They just kind of let them happen out of their circumstances. They, they'll look be intentional about other aspects of their life, but that's just one where it's just – Whoever happens to become, they become friends with. And I think it's important if you are, especially if you are moving locations, you are moving for a job or you're just out of college or, um, you know, going somewhere new to be intentional about the people you're, you're, you're meeting and the people you're putting in, in place in mm-hmm. your life. I agree. And it can be harder the older you get when it's when you're in college and everybody's, everybody's kind of in that same stay, stay, uh, station in life, status in life. I don't know. Insert the proper word there. Where they're like, hey, will you be my friend? And they're like, yeah, I'm looking for a friend too. And so they're all kind of like that. But then when you get older and it's like people have established friends and you come into a new place and everybody's like their neighbors have been neighbors forever. And you're like the new guy and they don't really necessarily want to have to go out and meet the new guy and get him in their life. And so it can be difficult for people. And I think you get at circling back to the benefit we have of having seminarians and lay students in class together, this whole cohort is automatically one another's peer in ministry, right? So when they need to debrief something or they need to shorthand something, they can call one another up. Or, I mean, we have people who will do like, you know, email chains of case studies when they've been out for seven years, like this just happened, you know, and get everybody's kind of insight on that. And again, they're able to both be supportive, but also to challenge. This happened to me very specifically when I was in campus ministry and I gave a talk on a psalm and I didn't reference Jesus at all, which I didn't think I needed to because Jesus didn't uh, reflect explicitly on the Psalms since he's in the New Testament and they're in the Old Testament. But the particular group is like, you know, where was Jesus in your talk? And so I'm like, I did a great talk. Come on. And I sent it to my classmates, you know, who are priests and also um, my lay classmates. And I said, can you believe this? I thought I did a pretty good job. And one of the guys, one of the priests came back and he said, I think you missed the boat, actually. I'm like, oh, I know you're right. Deep down, I know you're right. (laughs) But it's a lesson and it stays with me. Like Jesus needs to be a part of everything I talk about, you know? So, Stacey, this has been um, a lot of fun. And I'm looking forward to our next podcast um, where we're going to talk about Three concrete ways people can take this, what we've talked about, into their to their ministry, whether it be in a church, um, in a diocese, or, or in a place of business. So thank you so much for joining us today. I'm looking forward to uh, part two with you. And for our listeners, you can join us and tune in next time, same time, same channel, for uh, part two of Stacey Nome. Uh, Tom, it's always good to um, talk to you. Marisa, it's always a pleasure. It's always good to talk to you too, Marisa. <laughs> You too, Tom. I love you, Alan. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) Brother from another mother. I know, brother. I know. All right. So our listeners, we want to hear from you guys. So if you haven't uh, written written to us and reached out to us, please do so at Ascension Roundtable at ascensionpress.com. We love hearing your comments. Uh, Stacy, we'll be right back with you. We'll see everybody next week. Have a great week. We love you. Peace.